most of us are so well grounded in works and legalism that we're going to balance this on our own. Amen. <laughs> we'll get back home and we'll tend to fall back into the rut. So if I overstate this, you give it a week or so and you'll probably be back in balance. <laughs> but uh, one of the things about grace, I think one of the distinguishing characteristics that you can tell whether you are really walking in grace and whether you're trusting in the grace of God or not, one of the things about grace is that when you are relating to God on the basis of what He's done instead of what you've done, Everything that God has done is already past tense. It's already a finished work. It's accomplished. When you begin to start feeling like, God, I've got to obtain this and I've got to work to do this, when it becomes work and struggle instead of rest, you're beginning to move out of God's grace. God's grace is a position of rest. It's a position of peace. I believe another way of describing this is over in 1 Peter chapter 5 where it says, Casting all of your care upon Him, for He cares for you. If you have care, and I know that this could sound condemning. I don't mean it that way, but this is a way to, uh, just like a thermometer, to take your temperature every once in a while. Am I really walking in the grace of God? If you're taking care about things, if the weight of things are getting on you, you are not trusting God in God's grace. You've moved back into a performance thing. And you're trying to earn it. And the only fear that you can have is when you're in that flesh that we were talking about the other day. In the Spirit, there is nothing but love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. It doesn't list fear. It doesn't list anxiety. It doesn't list worry. Any of these kind of things. When we're in worry, and I know that somebody may think this is condemning. I don't mean it that way. I use this same thing on myself. All right? And it doesn't condemn me. It motivates me. But when you are in worry or fear, it's because you aren't trusting in God. I mean, there is no fear when you begin to trust in God. Perfect love casts out fear. If we were walking in God's perfect love, we will not have fear. And like Bob was saying, that doesn't mean that fear may not come, but it will not dominate you. It won't become a dominant feature in you. So anyway, from this, you can talk about grace. That when you are really thinking of God's grace, everything is already accomplished. Everything that God ever called you to do in your life has already been accomplished in God. The anointing that it takes to produce it is already there. You don't have to do something to get God to anoint you. You know, when I first started ministering, I did the typical thing. And every time before you administer, they'd take you into the back room and let's pray and ask God to anoint you. And I think it was the second time I ever ministered that while we were praying, the Lord spoke to me, He that hath called you and hath anointed you is God. Now that same anointing abides within you and you need not that any man teach you. You have an unction from the Holy One. And I mean, God just began to start giving me all of these scriptures and I stopped them the second time they did that and said, Brethren, God's already anointed us. Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And did you know that that was a real, I believe that's a major thing. I really do. If you are striving to get God's anointing, you aren't walking in grace. Because God, when He calls you, God would be unjust to call you and then not equip you. It would be unjust on God's part to call you to do a supernatural ministry and then expect you to do it without His power and anointing. All anointing is is the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. That's all it is. We make it weird, spooky. It just means that the Holy Ghost is manifest in His power in your life. And God will not call you to do something without giving you the power to fulfill it. So if you are called, you are also anointed. It's already there, and it's a matter of resting in it. It's a matter of abiding in it instead of working to get it. 
And this attitude, to me, every time the Lord begins to deal with me on this subject, this always props up and comes back into this thing about resting in the fact that it's already done. When I'm really walking in faith in what God has done, then it gives me a peace, like Jamie was singing about. It's well with my soul because it's already done. I mean, in the midst of the worst storm, the man that wrote that song, I don't know how many of you know the situation. He wasn't understanding some things. I, I believe they were right according to Scripture, but he was on his way uh, across the ocean. And he was, I believe, a missionary. I may not get all of this right, but anyway, he was a minister. His wife and children had gone across previous to that and had gone down in a storm, and his wife, and I don't know how many children, uh, drowned, and he lost them. And he was on his way, I believe, back to the mission field. And as he came across that spot, the captain showed him where his wife and kids went down. And he was standing on that boat looking at that. And he started singing, It is well with my soul. And he started singing about peace. And he didn't understand. He thought maybe it was God's will for him to go. We know that it wasn't God that did it. But nonetheless, that man had peace. He had peace because of his relationship with God. And brothers and sisters, when we are out of peace, when we are into trying to work and perform and make something happen, I believe that it ought to be a manifest token to us that we are not in the grace of God. In Ephesians and in Colossians chapter 2, there are parallel books, and he prays prayers here, and, and Ephesians is very clear on this, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, but Colossians chapter 2 here is where I want to start. And notice what Paul is praying. He's not praying that God will give you a double portion, that God will pour out upon you His anointing, that God will give you this or that God will give you that. But here's what he prays in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 1. He says, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them that Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. He prays that your hearts would be knit together in love unto all riches. That means that there you can just get a part of these riches. In other words, there is different levels of seeing and understanding these truths. He wants you to receive all of the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Notice all of these words. He's not praying that God would give you new power, new anointing, more faith, more anything. He's praying that you would begin to really understand the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement. And the word acknowledge, you can't acknowledge something that's not there. This is talking about something that's already a reality. He's asking you to acknowledge the mystery of of God and of the Father and of Christ, which back in verse 27 of the first chapter is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's just wanting you to acknowledge that Christ is already here. And again, we've developed these concepts that God's out here and we're trying to get to God. We say it by things like, man, their prayer didn't get above the ceiling. You don't need your prayer to get above your nose, amen. God's not out there. God's right here. And we may think, well, that's not really that important, but it is that important because it's an evident token that, see, we, we somehow or another see God out here instead of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes. If you could see that God's already in you, how could you wonder whether you're going to make it with God Himself in you? It's because we don't really have revelation of that. Many times we get out of that and we're trying to get God in us. 
Amen. We are trying to make something happen instead of just sit back and get the full assurance, the riches of the understanding to acknowledge all of this. Brother, everything that we need in the Christian life, everything you need as a ministry has already been provided. Did you know God already has a perfect plan for Jerry's life? And everything is already laid out, all of the power and anointing it takes, the grace. He knows every obstacle, every weapon that yes. will be formed against him. And he has given him specific power and anointing to deal with everyone. We never need to feel like when we come up against something that's new to us, we never need to feel like it's new to God. God's already equipped you to handle every single thing. And see, if we could learn to rest in that and acknowledge and just rely on the fact that God's already done it, boy, there would be such power in our life. In Isaiah chapter 32, I believe it's verse 17, it says the work of righteousness is peace and the effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. Did you know when you understand your right standing with God, you'll get to the place you can be quiet? We've used these examples of Smith Wigglesworth that he was going to bed and saw a shadow and he held up his candle and he saw the devil and he blew it out and he said, oh, it's just you. Went to bed. Amen. There's strength in that. See, that man knew his position so much. Many of us would have raised up and started rebuking him, doing all of these things. Did you know sometimes all of our religious actions actually belie the fear and the doubt that's in our heart? I know that when I've cast demons out of people out and these demons manifest themselves, people sometimes will go to yelling, Jesus, name Jesus, Jesus. And you know, I, it sounds like I'm, I'm criticizing that, but there's no magic in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus will not work without faith. And many times it's spoken out of fear. And I guarantee you, it doesn't drive the devil away. Many times it takes a lot more faith to just stand there and laugh or to say, no, Satan, in Jesus' name, and just do it real calmly. Uh -huh. Now, I'm not saying there's not a time to get up violent either because like Bob was giving that example and some other things, I've done that, and it depends on how God leads you. But many times we just are, need to rest in the fact that it's already accomplished. Right. And you know, that quietness and that peace, that rest in the Lord would go a long way. And see, Paul is praying this here. He's, he's trying to get them to understand that, look, you've already got it. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays a prayer and he says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may see what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance and what is the greatness of His power to usward. Not that you would go get this power and have it committed to you, but He says He just wants you to see what's already there. The same power that it took to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is already dwelling on the inside of us. You know, many of us came to this conference looking to get something, and it's not totally wrong if you're saying, Father, I know that I've already got it, but I need my mind renewed to it. Give me that revelation then that's fine. But if you came here, God, I'm so totally depleted, I don't have any power. I need power. Did you know that you actually started from a position of unbelief? You got out of what the Word taught. You got over here into admitting, I am not what the Word of God says I am. You are starting from a position of unbelief. That's not a very good place to start from when you're trying to receive from God. Instead, we ought to start from the position that it's already finished. It's already completed. I already have it in Christ Jesus. Anyway, I'd like to read this whole thing. I imagine you're familiar with it. But if you'll go on down, he talks about that this is one of the ways to keep error out because in Christ Jesus are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, don't let anybody try and convince you that you need to go anywhere except Jesus for anything. Jesus is the answer to everything. And that's one way you keep deception out. 
And then he says in verse 9, For in him, speaking of Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You are not going to be complete in Christ. You are already complete in Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 16, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, Grace and peace came through him, and of his fullness have all we received. Of his fullness. You didn't get a little dab of God. You got every bit of God that God could give you, and it's all resident right here in your spirit. You're already complete in him. The fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus bodily, and you are in him, and you're complete. And brothers and sisters, you can't get more faith. You can't get more anointing. You can't get more righteous. You can't get more holy. You can't get more pleasing to God. It's already there. Now, you can renew your mind to it and receive more anointing, manifest, receive more faith in operation in your life. You can walk in more joy, but the truth is you've already got it. You know, this little simple truth that we're talking about, if we really believed it and understood it, it would do away with such a thing as depression, discouragement, yes. fear. I'm ready to quit. You know, we talk about burnout. We've mentioned that this week. Burnout, all it is, is you are operating in your own ability. You're receiving negative results. You're, you're receiving more warfare than what you're able to accomplish in yourself, and you have felt the bottom of your reservoir. You feel like you're running out of steam. Anytime you are facing burnout, it's because you are doing it in your own ability. You may be doing all the right things, but you're doing it in your own ability. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In, consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Is anybody weary? If you're weary, it's because you've considered something other than Jesus. When you're considering Jesus, when you're looking at Jesus and what he's done in your life, you cannot be weary because how can you despair of getting something that you've already got? When I first started in ministry, I was so poor, I didn't have a Bible. In the first church I pastored, I didn't have a Bible to pastor it with. And boy, the devil tried to really beat me over the head with that. So I started believing God for a Bible. And I started confessing that I had a Bible. Not two people, so they'd buy me one, but I started confessing it before God. And did you know Satan used to come to me all the time? Some great man of God you are. You can't even believe in a Bible. If you can't even get a Bible, how are you ever going to see anybody healed? I mean, it was hard, and I fought that. And that may not seem like a big deal to you, but it took me two months to get enough money to buy a Bible. And I mean, I fought the devil tooth and toenail. That was one of my first faith projects. Believe in God for enough money to get a Bible. But did you know after I got that Bible and I had it in my hand, I never had a doubt come to me that I was going to get it. I already had it. Why would you doubt that you're going to get something that you've already got? Why would you doubt that God's going to use you if he's already called you and if he's already anointed you? It's because you aren't looking at what God has done. You're looking at what you think you must do. You aren't resting in him, but instead you've moved over into your own efforts. I guarantee you, when you get into Christ and you get to understanding that it's already accomplished through Jesus and all you're doing is appropriating what God has already done, all you're doing is acknowledging it, then it takes a lot of the frustration out of it. If you don't feel the presence of the Lord, most of us have this concept that I don't know why God, I'm not feeling his presence. I don't know why I don't have a relationship with him. And so we start doing things, hoping that if we will do this, then God will bless me back with his presence, with that relationship again. 
Did you know the truth is, God never changed. He didn't quit giving you that joy and that peace. God never pulled back from it. It's a constant. God never withdraws His peace from you, His presence from you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. God never changes. What happens is we get in and out of acknowledging it. Because certain things happen most of the time, it's because we recognize by our own conscience that we aren't worthy of it, and so we quit believing. Did you know all you've got to do to get close to God, you can't get any closer than having Him live on the inside of you, is acknowledge it. If you want to say, well, I wish I had the love of God, did you know it's up to you just to acknowledge it and by faith take it? Amen. And yet, well, I've, I've tried that and I didn't feel anything. Well, see, you're waiting on a feeling, you're waiting on an emotion. You know, I really believe, if you think about this, this is a terrible slam against Jesus. To say, well, I know that you died for me. I know that you suffered. I know that you went to hell. I know that you did all of these things. And I thank you for that. But I want a feeling. What does God have to do to prove to us that he loves us? We need to get to a place to where God has done it. We know it in the Word, and it's just by faith acknowledging it. You can have as much joy tonight as you want to have. It's up to you to acknowledge it. It's not up to you to do something and then wait on God to give it to you. See, God's already given it. It's just like salvation. You don't just ask and say, oh, God saved me, and then wait until somehow God proves that He saved you. You had to believe it was an accomplished fact, it was available to anybody, and you had to reach out and take it. Did you know that there are millions of people dying and going to hell who are desiring salvation and crying out to God for salvation and aren't getting it because they don't understand the gospel, that it's already accomplished, and whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They don't believe that. Instead, they're out here with their head shaved, or they've got a tin cup, they've taken an oath of poverty, they're working their way to God through something, and they're missing out on salvation, and yet they desire it. There's some people that have given their entire life to it. And yet they aren't obtaining it because they aren't just believing what God has already done for them. It's up to them to believe. God's already done it. You don't have to wait on the Lord to wonder, will he do it? You don't ask and then wait on God to save you. It's already done. The moment faith is present, the power of God flows. Did you know it's the same thing with healing? It's already been done. We aren't waiting on God to heal us. Let me rephrase that. We shouldn't be waiting on God to heal us. We shouldn't pray and then wonder, is God going to heal us? It's already done. The moment you believe, the healing power of God is in manifestation. Amen. It is not God who waits until you reach some level of faith or do something and then dispenses it. It's already dispensed. It's just when you, you have to reach out in faith and get it. You know, but when I was in the Baptist church, a little kid, they had an illustration. A guy in vacation Bible school got up and held up a dollar bill. And he said, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that will come up here and take it. And I was at the back of the auditorium, 600 kids in there. And all these other kids just instantly were up there jumping up. Yeah, I want it, I want it, I was first. And they were yelling all this. And I was thinking, what a time to be in the back of the auditorium. <laughs> I couldn't get up there. And this guy wouldn't give it to him. He just kept this dollar bill up in his hand. And he kept repeating. He says, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that will come up here and take it. And I thought, well, he's got all these kids around. Why doesn't he give it to them? And, and all of a sudden, it dawned on me. And I knew what he was saying. Man, I raced down that aisle. I pushed all of these guys that were my friends out of the way. And I grabbed his arm like this. And I mean, I just jumped, climbed up his side. And I grabbed that dollar bill out of his hand. And I got it. And all the other kids saying, that wasn't fair. I was here first. And you know what? He said, that's the first kid that came up here and took it. He said, it was available. You didn't have to work for it. It was a gift. 
but you have to take it. And he used that to illustrate salvation, and we agree with that. Did you know it's the same thing with healing? Many of us will preach that in healing, but did you know it's the same thing with the peace of God? You've already got it. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Right. All those things are already present in your spirit. They're already functioning in your spirit. Now, if you don't feel faith, is it because your faith is gone? It's always here. You've got the faith of God in your spirit. It's just that at the moment, your mind isn't operating in faith. It's operating in fear or worry or whatever. And so you renew your mind. You acknowledge it and begin to release it. But you don't have to wonder and go get it. Boy, it's so easy when you don't have to go get something when it's already here. You're fighting because you've got it and I want to release it instead of I'm going to fight to go get it. I don't fight to get healed. I'm already healed. I fight because I am healed and Satan will not steal from me what God has already given to me. I don't live holy to get the relationship with God and so that God will love me. I live holy because God's already loved me and Satan is not going to come into my life and steal and kill and lie to me and deceive me from this. I'm going to shut every door on the devil that I can think of to keep him from taking from me what God's already given me. But see, the whole Christian life is learning how to rest in this. I'm already complete in Christ Jesus. Look in Hebrews chapter 4. The book of Hebrews is a powerful book on the subject of grace. In chapter 1, he starts out showing that Jesus is preeminent to the angels. And then in chapter 2, the reason that he made that point was to show you that the Old Testament law was communicated under angels. And if, angel, if something communicated by angels was so steadfast that if you disobeyed it, man, there was death and punishment then how much more steadfast is the new covenant that Jesus administered? And he works up to the fifth chapter. He talks about Melchizedek showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Melchizedek priesthood because he shows you Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical law priesthood. And the point that he's wanting to make is since the priesthood is changed, the law has to also be changed. We need to quit trying to work our way to God and enter into this new covenant. And he describes that new covenant, the 8th chapter. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 and talks about this new covenant. Let's just look at uh, Hebrews 8 real quick. I'm coming back. But look at Hebrews 8. He's using uh, Old Testament scriptures and he quotes from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. What this is saying is that you won't have to get this revelation secondhand, somebody else saying, Here's the way it is, but they'll all know me. God himself comes and lives in us and gives us personal revelation. And then he says in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Awesome covenant. Awesome. Amen. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Is God merciful to your unrighteousness? It's one thing to be in a Bible conference and say yes, but when you're at home, and Satan is condemning you over something you've done, do you really feel God is merciful to you when you're unrighteous? Boy, many of us are our own worst enemy. Amen. We condemn ourselves and beat ourselves down. And the point that I'm trying to make is that that's not God. In your spirit, man, 
He still loves you. He still accepts you. He still relates to you. And the whole time you're down on yourself and feeling rotten, God loves you. You know, God's pleased with a lot of the things that have gone on here this week. Many of you have felt the pleasure and the acceptance of the Lord. Did you know that it is not any different here than it is when you're at home? Amen. It's just that you're, you're in a position where you're hearing about it. You're seeing other people and you're constantly in that atmosphere. But did you know that God's love for you is stronger than you've ever experienced this week? Stronger than you've ever experienced any time in your life? God loves us more than we've ever realized. It's us that doesn't let God love us. We don't let God prove to us His love. He says in the ninth chapter, He begins to rehearse all of the uh, furniture of the temple and look in chapter 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary. And after that the second veil, the tabernacle, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein were the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubs of mercy, I mean the cherubs of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. And he goes on in this chapter and tells you that every one of those things was a, was a symbol of a reality in heaven. And the earthly tabernacle was just symbols, but there is a real tabernacle and Jesus entered into there with a better offering, a better sacrifice, sanctified it, and changed forever everything. Did you know that in rehearsing all of the pieces of the um, tabernacle, all of these pieces of service, did you know that there's one piece that he says, this we cannot speak of now particularly. In other words, this doesn't have a counterpart in heaven. You know, did you catch that? In verse 5, it's talking about the cherubs of glory shadowing the mercy seat. The mercy seat in heaven does not have cherubs of glory over it. On the earth it did, but in heaven it didn't. You know why? Cherubs, we sometimes look at them as fat little babies or however they're depicted. Did you know in the Bible it was cherubs that were set at the east end of the Garden of Eden to protect the way of life? They're warrior angels. You know what this was? This was to keep people from the presence of God because of sin that had defiled mankind. And if somebody entered in beyond that second veil, those cherubs over that mercy seat would strike people dead. They even said that if the Jewish priest would walk in there with a rope tied around his leg in case he was struck dead, nobody could go get him. And they'd drag him out. I mean, there was a separation between God, that mercy seat, the way to it wasn't made clear. But did you know in the new covenant, that mercy seat now is clear. There aren't any cherubs, of mer uh, uh, cherubs over it to keep you from it because see, and this is what he goes on to say in the ninth chapter, that, that we have been made a way unto the Lord. In chapter 10 it says, by a new and living way which God hath consecrated for us, that is through the, through the veil, that is through his flesh, a new and living way so that we can come before Him with boldness, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies uh, cleansed from all of these dead works. We can enter right into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 says that we should have no more conscience of sin. The Old Testament pointed towards that, but it couldn't accomplish it. 
But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, if you take that and apply it in a New Testament sense, if you could have a good sacrifice, which Jesus was, then we should have no more conscience of sin because the worshipers once purged, there's no more remembrance of sin. Did you know that there's very few Christians that have experienced that? And again, it comes back to this thing that we're relating to God based on ourselves, our flesh, instead of what we are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we're already complete. In Christ Jesus, it's already done. Man, i got three different ways I want to go, and there's no way to go all three of them here. <laughs> Look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3. It says, for in those, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, and this is Jesus speaking, but it's a quotation from an Old Testament Psalms. Where is it? Psalms 46. This is a quotation from Psalms 40, verse 6. And it's a quotation, but it shows you that this is Jesus speaking. And he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. This is Jesus speaking. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. And again, it's bringing up this point. He is changing the way of relating to God. No longer is it under the Old Testament law. There is a new covenant. And here is the new covenant. Verse 10, By the which will or covenant or testimony we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This same point is made in Hebrews chapter 9. I haven't got time to go back there, but he talks about that he entered in one time for us and obtained eternal redemption. Well, that's powerful. Eternal redemption. Did you know most Christians do not have the concept of eternal redemption? They may say those words, but very few people have the concept of eternal redemption. Most Christians believe that when you got born again, God wiped the slate clean and gave you a brand new start. But now that you've got a brand new start, you better take advantage of it because if you mess up, it's going to be held against you. And we develop a sin consciousness again. You know why there was so much joy when you first got born again? I mean, it seemed like you'd never have another problem ever again. It's because you believed your sins were wiped away. You really believed that if you were to stand right in the presence of God, you were forgiven. Sin was not held against you. That'll make you happy. Amen? That'll bless you. But then after a while, if you make a mistake... And you go back to the people that led you to the Lord and say, if you just make Jesus your Lord, praise God, He'll forgive you of your sin. You'll be free. You go back to those same people and say, well, I sinned. What should I do? Man, God won't fellowship with you. And immediately we begin to separate ourselves and, and put people back under that sin. And we begin to start recognizing that those sins are being held against us. Maybe not to the point of us going to hell, but to the point of us we can't be healed with sin in your life. You can't have the presence of God with sin in your life. You can't fellowship with God with sin in your life, etc. And all of a sudden, sin is the major, major problem in Christians' lives. 
Did you know if you really understand eternal redemption, sin is not a problem between you and God? Amen. I usually, at a minister's conference, don't try and get doctrinal because I know that you may not agree with this and we're here to edify one another, but praise God, I'm not ashamed of this either. If you don't agree with this, just love me anyway and listen. Eat the good and spit out the bad. But I really do believe that this is a major point that most people don't get. We are not really applying redemption to us the way the Bible teaches it. Did you know that God forgave you of sin, not just to the point that you got born again, but He forgave you of past, present, and future tense sin? Some people say, brother, you can't tell me God forgave you of a sin if you hadn't committed it yet, if you hadn't forgiven it. Well, if that isn't so, then how did you get born again? He died for sin 2,000 years ago, and if He didn't pay for your sins in advance of you committing them, you couldn't have gotten born again. God can deal with future tense sins. Your sins have already been dealt with. Did you know if you go out of here and blow it big time, it just devastates you. I'm talking to people who are born again and who love God. It devastates you because you say, God, I'm sorry. And you feel like, God, how could you put up with me after I did this? If you would just get hold of this truth and remember that God has already forgiven you and bought eternal redemption. Every sin's already paid for. In advance, if you'd understand that, then you'd recognize that when God forgave you at eight years old, in my case, or whenever you got born again, God knew I was going to forgive this. God had already dealt with that sins and all of my future tense sins were already put under the blood and paid for and God's not going to hold it against me. Now this is what it's saying. Verse 10. By the which will, testament, death, offering of Jesus, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That means once forever. Some people may think this is saying, well, this is one offering for all of mankind. But if you'll read it in context, especially in the ninth chapter, but even right here you can see that it's talking about it was one offering for all time, not all mankind. Verse 11 says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and remember in context he's explaining this same thing. He's talking about that this one sacrifice was forever. That's the for all that it's talking about, not for all mankind, but it's forever. It's a length of time. Sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, you've been sanctified once for all. And verse 14 says, if you've been sanctified, you've been perfected once for all, forever. Well, those are powerful scriptures. You have been redeemed. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleansed you to such a degree that sin is not an issue between you and God. Some people say, how can this be, brother? You can't tell me that, man... You see, you see something like this and you go look in a mirror and you say, I'm holy, I'm sanctified, I'm perfected. See, it's not your flesh that's perfected. Your body isn't the part of you that's saved. If you were fat before you got saved, you're going to be fat after you get saved unless you go on a diet. The, 
flesh didn't get saved. And your soulish realm, your emotional part, isn't the part of you that's born again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. That's your spirit that got born again. Your flesh isn't born again. Your soul isn't born again. But your spirit is born again. And that spirit was sanctified and perfected forever. It's clean. It's holy. It's pure. It's as pure right this moment as it was the moment you got born again. It's as pure right this moment as it's going to be throughout all eternity. It will not be improved upon. It won't be changed. It won't have to be wiped and cleansed from the defilement that you've got living in this body. Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that seal doesn't mean like a stamp where you stamp it. It's the seal like a woman seals her preserves. You put it in an airtight jar and put paraffin over it so that no contaminants can get in there. No air can get there. It's sealed. We're sealed with the Holy Ghost and there's nothing that can contaminate this spirit. Your spirit is not defiled. John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you come before God in spirit and in truth, then you can come before God with no conscience of sin. Because there is no sin in your spirit. It is righteous. It is holy. It is pure. It's sanctified and perfected forever. If you come before God, oh God, I'm so unworthy. You just identified which part of you you're approaching God in. You're approaching God in the flesh. You're approaching God in the natural man. And the reason God gave you this new spirit was because when you get born again, you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You are perfect and holy. And if God didn't give you a brand new spirit, God couldn't deal with you the way the new covenant is talking about because you would be defiled. You would be unworthy. But see, there's a part of you that's as pure as Jesus is pure. There's a part of you that's just as much loved by God as God loves Jesus. God doesn't love Jesus any more than he loves your born-again spirit because it is literally the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ that's sent into your heart. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. My spirit is joined with the Lord, merged with the Lord. My spirit and Jesus' spirit are identical. They're identical in holiness, identical in power, identical in love, joy, peace. They're identical in everything. My spirit has already been sanctified and perfected forever. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse um, 20-something. Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 23, he says, You have come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Your spirit is made perfect. And according to Hebrews 10, 14, it has been made perfect forever. Your spirit is perfect. Your spirit is pure. You have the same righteousness that Jesus has in your spirit. And God is wanting us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. He's wanting us to walk in what He has done instead of us walking in what we can do for Him and say, God, is it enough? He's wanting us to just rest in Him. And in the Spirit, everything is complete. You aren't trying to get holy in God's sight. You are holy in God's sight because God is a Spirit and He looks at you in the Spirit realm. Religion always deals with the outer man. 1 Samuel 6, 17. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We use that scripture in a negative sense. What about the big question where Christians say, Jesus is coming back for a body that's not without spot or church? Well, 
you can make uh, a lot of comparisons on this. It is not just your spirit that's important. Your spirit is the main part of you, and when it comes to fellowshipping with God, you must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But that doesn't mean I neglect my body, because if I just go out here and go live in sin, and uh, let me uh, use an example. I won't use a name. The guy told me I could, but there's a man here who made a big mistake last week. Overdosed on drugs. Nearly killed him. A minister. And he had enough commitment and love and honesty to humble himself and tell me what he had done. And he nearly died last week. And he came here as a step of his faith. And you know, I ministered righteousness that God loves you and he has been transformed this week knowing God's acceptance. Amen. God loves him. God loves him the same as if he had never taken an overdose of drugs last week. That's right. God doesn't love him any less than he loves anybody in here that lived and didn't miss a lick. Man, no sin in your life. God isn't more pleased with you than he's pleased with this other guy. So in the spirit, the spirit's complete. But man, he nearly killed himself. He has suffered, suffered, suffered. And I told him, I said, God loves you, but you're stupid. <laughs> I said, why would you punish your body that way? And man, he has got the message. He now knows that he's got to take care of this body. And so the point that I'm making is the spirit is important. As far as God loving you, that's true. But we aren't only a spirit. We have a soul and a body. And I've got to deal with the soul and body. And so I take care of my body too. We are a spirit, soul, and body. And we've got to live in all three realms. But when it comes to relating to God, you can only relate to God. You can only approach Him in spirit and truth. So there's a parallel here between the church. God loves the church not based on action. He loves the church based only on the fact that you have put faith in His Son as a Savior. But our actions would parallel to our body. And God wants to also get the church to where it is acting right because He says that that is how all men will know that we are His disciples by our love one for another. So He is wanting to work this righteousness out of just our relationship with Him and get it to where it's manifest in our bodies and He's not coming back until He sees His church beginning to walk in that maturity and action. So I wish I could say everything that needs to be said tonight. You do need to maintain righteousness but not for that relationship with God. Bernie? I was going to ask you if that's why I and God will tell you to live holy. God will deal with your flesh. But why does He deal with it? To say, if you don't get this flesh in line, I won't fellowship with you? No, God only fellowships with you based on who you are in the Spirit, which that Spirit is righteous, holy, and pure. But that flesh is Satan's inroad into your life. And God, because He loves you, doesn't want to see you out here taking an overdose of drugs and letting Satan come in and nearly kill you and destroy you. So God will tell you, don't do it. And He'll convict you when you do it. Not for the purpose of rejecting you or having anything to do in his relationship with you, but because he loves you, he doesn't want you to go out here and let Satan into your life. So he'll convict you when you start living in sin. He'll convict you when you start getting into temptation. But see, we misunderstood it. Let me also say this. Somebody says, are you, are you telling me that when you live in sin that you still experience all the love and joy and the peace of God? No, I don't. But it is not because God withdrew it from me and God cut it off. It's because... I quit operating in faith. You can't, you can't uh, faith sin. You can't commit sin in faith. So here's God over here, and I'm looking at Him and receiving His love and joy and peace, and then Satan tempts me on 
taps me on the shoulder and wants me to go live in sin. And to go to that sin, I have to turn my back on this love and joy and peace. It's not God that quits giving. It's still giving. It's just like the sun. The sun's shining, but you can put something up, block that light, and you can get into the shade. You can get out of it. But it's not God that turns it off. The sun's never off. God's love is never off. It's always shining. It's just that we turn our back on it and look to the devil. You cannot follow the devil and follow God at the same time. And so when I get into sin, it is true that I don't experience love, joy, and peace, but it's not because God quit giving it. It's because I got out of, the, of thinking about who God was and keeping my mind stayed on Him, and I got into the flesh. And the flesh profits Nothing. It is not going to release the love and joy and peace. I've got to be in faith to do what we're talking about. That's right. So I've got to turn back and get my eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith, and go to renewing my mind on what he's done to me, etc. Right. My spirit is righteous and truly holy, implying that there is a false holy. You know what false holiness is? Your actions. Now, your actions may be holy by man's standard, but it is like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. The righteousness that your spirit has is true righteousness. The righteousness that you produce is important when it comes to relationships with other people and keeping a job, doing other things, but I guarantee you it is a false righteousness. It cannot ever become the... Uh, exchange between you and God. You can't use it as the currency in heaven. The only thing that profits in heaven is Jesus' righteousness, and you get that only by faith. Amen. Amen. When you're walking in faith. Bill? Andy, that really in Colossians, the first chapter, verse 12, says, Give thanks unto the Father which has made us meet. The word meet there, you're quick to qualify us to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints and life. Well, it's our spirit. It's the inheritance of the blessings of God. That's right. And it says, hath made us meet. It's past tense. Again, see, when you understand this, everything's already accomplished in Christ. And if I'm not experiencing what God's Word promises me I got in Christ, it's not because God didn't give it. I've got to go get it. It's just that I haven't renewed my mind to it. I'm not believing it. I'm not releasing it. It's not that I have to go get it. Yeah? comment on... I was headed that direction. Might as well get there now. <laughs> I know that Pentecostals believe in save, lost, save, lost, save, lost, save, lost, born again, 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 again. Every time you see it. And it has a lot of variations to this. Some people believe it's only really big things that will cause you to lose it. But let me establish a principle. You cannot, if committing a sin caused you to lose your salvation, then any sin would cause you to lose your salvation because the Bible says in, in uh, James chapter 2, verse 10, it says that if I keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, I become guilty of all. So, in God's eyes, and, and the verse is right in front of that and behind it, it says if I do not commit any murder, and yet if I steal, I'm guilty of murder. It's, I've used this example. If you had glass all the way across this auditorium, you can shoot a BB through it or run that piano through it. It doesn't matter the size of the hole that you make. If you break it, it's broken. God's law is one law made up of thousands of commandments. But if you break any commandment of God, you are damned if you are trusting in fulfilling the law for justification. And so, if that's true, which it is, and we could verify that by a lot of other scriptures, then, if you believe that sin would cause you to lose this perfection and holiness, 
then that means any sin would cause you to lose it. And if that be so, there's a man in Colorado Springs that preaches that if you go 56 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone, and if you had a car wreck and died, you would go to hell because you didn't have time to confess it as sin and repent. Now see, most of us say, oh, that's too strict. But if you can go to hell because of sin may causing you to lose this righteousness, then that's right. Amen. If sin is going to cause you to lose this righteousness with God, then that is a correct attitude. And you can't say, well, no, it's not like that. It's only the big sins. God doesn't grade on a curve, amen. You either are going to have to stand judgment and you are going to have to be holy or you aren't. And somebody's saying, but if I confess it, well, let's just take that example. What happens if you die and don't confess it? Are you going to send somebody to hell for going 56 miles an hour? Most of you would say no. But if they were, if they'd committed adultery and had a car wreck before they confessed it, they'd go to hell. That's not the way God looks at it. Sin has varying effects. I believe going 56 miles an hour is much less damaging to other people than adultery. So in that sense, you can say certain sins are worse than others because they have worse consequences in our experience. But in God's sight, breaking the law is breaking the law. Sin is sin. So let me finish answering. I'm not through with this yet. I'll get to your question, Doug. But, uh, so anyway, the principle is your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever. It is sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I believe without going into a lot of detail, 1 John chapter 3, when it says that whosoever is born of God cannot commit sin, that's talking about your spirit. Because you, some people say, well, that means habitual sin, brother. But did you know if it's talking about habitual sin, again, what are we talking about? Well, the church that I was brought up in says, well, it means that if you're an alcoholic, you might sin once or you might sin twice, but if you were really born again, you will not habitually be an alcoholic. And anybody who claims to be born again and continues to be an alcoholic is just not what 1 John 3, 9 says. They are not born again. Well, most of it, many of us would probably agree with that. But did you know if you go back again and say that sin is sin in the sight of God, did you know that gluttony is habitual sin? Amen. And somebody, oh, wow, brother, I can't help it. You never accidentally stuck anything in your mouth and ate it in your life. You, you can't help it. You make a decision every time you stick something in your mouth. It is habitual sin. Now, if you're going to say that 1 John 3, 9 is talking about habitual sin, then that means every gluttony is also going to go to hell because they couldn't be born of God because if you're born of God, you cannot habitually sin. I don't believe that that holds water. That would mean none of us are saved because all of us habitually fall short in some area. I believe it's talking about your spirit. Your spirit cannot sin. Your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever. When you sin, your sin, spirit doesn't sin. It's your flesh that sins. And so because of that, God can still love you and still have a relationship with you because your spirit isn't defiled any at all. So sin cannot send you to hell. If it did, which sin is it that's going to do it? You're going to have to start categorizing them saying, well, these are bad sins that will do it. These sins you can squeak by with. And that's basically what religion does. Religion has an elaborate system of which sins will cause God to reject you. All right, and they, they vary. Some of them, it's the way you look, whether your hair is combed a certain way, the length of your dress, whether you got makeup on, or etc. But it varies, but it's still the same principle. And that will not hold water scripturally. And before I go on and answer the rest of this, let me just say, 
that if anybody, and I'm not saying this condemning because I know that we come in with lots of different backgrounds, but if any of you hold to this doctrine that we've been talking about, I do not believe you'll ever reach a place of stability in your relationship with God. Because I can promise you that you are going to sin. You are going to fail. And every time you do, regardless of how high you climb your ladder towards God, get closer to Him, every time you sin big enough to hit that barrier where this is really being imputed against you and you're going to hell, you're backslidden and going to hell if you're in that state. That just knocks you back to the floor. And you have to start climbing all over again. And many of you, this is a characteristic of your life. Man, you just get up there and about the time you're about to make it, you go back to ground zero and you start all over. And there's no stability in your life. Your life is based on your goodness instead of on what Jesus did for you. And somebody says, but you've got to confess it again and apply the blood to it. Well, what happens if you don't confess one? Are you willing to make your salvation dependent on you confessing every sin you ever do in your life? Amen. If I really believed that, I'd kill you because that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven. <laughs> I might go to hell, but you'd never get there if I didn't kill you. The moment you get born again, kill you. It's the only time you're going to get clean. We'd be doing people a service. Get them born again and kill them. <laughs> well why about the scriptures about Hebrews chapter 6 if they fall away etc well the church I was brought up in said that's a hypo, uh, what do they call it hypothetical case it cannot happen and it's talking about if it could happen it'd show, this is the reason it can't happen because look how impossible this would be and I really haven't got time to teach on this we could spend hours trying to establish eternal security I got tapes on this if anybody wants to get my opinion on it but I really believe no sin can send you to hell. No sin is greater than God's grace in your life. You have obtained eternal Amen. redemption, sanctified Amen. and perfected forever. But it was faith that produced that, and you have to hold fast that profession of faith. Sin cannot send you to hell, but you've got a free choice. God didn't make you get saved. You had to choose it. And God will not force you to stay saved. You can choose to elect out of salvation. You can renounce salvation. And you can't renounce it multiple times. Hebrews chapter 6, you can only renounce it one time. If you renounce it, you are reprobate and impossible of ever being renewed under repentance. And you cannot renounce it accidentally. It, Hebrews chapter 6 gives five qualifications. You have to have been a partaker of the powers of the world to come. And, well, I misquoted that. But anyway, there's five of them there. And what it's talking about is maturity. It's talking about a mature person. Somebody will say, wait a minute. When I first got born again, I got really bummed out. And I got so bummed out, I just said, God, I've rejected. I'm turning away from all this stuff. Well, God would no more hold that against you than He would my son when he's two years old saying, I don't want to be a womack. I renounce you. <laughs> because he doesn't know what he's doing. The law would back me up. They don't know what they're talking about. I ran away from home when I was about seven or something. And I remember before I was out of sight of home, I intentionally got caught in a barbed wire fence so my brother could catch me. He was coming after me. And I was glad. I knew. I, I, before I was out of sight of home, I wanted to go back. But I wanted to be drug back. I didn't want him to think that I was weak and came back home. I didn't know what I was doing. But if my child is 50 years old and wants to renounce me and say, I want nothing to do with you, I sever all ties, the law will actually back him. You do have a free choice, but in ignorance or in immaturity, your free choice isn't really accounted to you. And Paul said this. He blasphemed the Holy Ghost and he said, yet the Lord forgave me because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
Renouncing the Lord is not something that can be done accidentally. It cannot be done just because of an emotion. It has to be a willful thing, understanding the consequence. And in Romans chapter 2, talks about once that happens, you are reprobate. God takes all knowledge of God away from you. And that means that any person who says, well, I'm fearful I rejected the Lord. Oh God, I hope it isn't so. Well, no, you didn't do it because you're convicted. <laughs> when you become reprobate, God ceases to draw you. No man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit draws him. So you just, there's, there's, uh, there's no drawing if a person is reprobate. Did you have a comment? I, I just wanted to say, because maybe you didn't finish this, but, but that's not by action either. No. Because if, if you didn't do anything to get saved, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. Right. That's right. Did everybody hear Rob? He's saying that it's not by action that you reject the Lord. Somebody might say, well, murder would be the action that causes rejection. No action is beyond God's grace. And David is a good example. Under an inferior covenant, David committed adultery and murder to cover it up. And God still forgave it and put it away. But let me say this. Somebody will say, well, are you saying a person just go live in sin? I mean, you're saved and because you're saved, just go live in sin? Sin hardens our heart towards God. Hebrews chapter 3 says that. Sin makes us spiritually retarded. It takes away faith. It takes away understanding. You cannot acknowledge what we're talking about. A person who's living in sin and persisting in it will get duller and duller and duller to the things of God. He'll harden himself. And Satan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you are to that place where you are even capable of renouncing the Lord, Satan will cause you to be put in a position where he'll try and get you to renounce the Lord. And a person who's living in sin, I wouldn't give you two cents for their ability to hold fast their profession. I mean, if they are just going berserk in it. They need to recognize that that sin is an inroad of Satan into their life and Satan is going to try and get you to renounce your faith. And adultery is not the sin that will cause you to renounce, but adultery may become so tempting to you that you will willfully choose adultery over God. And it could be the catalyst that Satan uses to destroy you. So I am not advocating sin. I think sin is deadly. But see, sin had two effects to it. Sin was not only a transgression against God. That's what I call a vertical effect. But sin was also had a horizontal effect to it. And you can see this, Romans 6, 16. It says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin, un, I mean, whether of uh, sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Sin opened up a door to the devil. And even though God doesn't hold sin against us, God isn't going to reject us because of sin. Sin makes us a servant of the devil and sin can make you reject God. Not one individual sin, but you could be hardened through sin to the point that you wind up rejecting God. And that's the only thing that can affect this being sanctified and perfected forever. God has made that spirit clean. God has made it pure. And that's the way that God looks at you and that's the way that God deals with you. And if you understand this, you know what it will do. It will give you such boldness. The Bible says in uh, Proverbs 28, 1, the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous. And that is not talking about the, the holy. Those who are living good are bold as a lion. It's talking about those who believe in their righteousness that comes as a gift from God are bold as a lion. You want to know how you can be bold? 
If you really thought that God, I am ta- it's just like I've never sinned. That's what I believe the word justified means. Just as if I'd never sinned. Amen. I'm justified. If you could really get that concept, no more conscience of sin, God sees me righteous and pure, did you know there would be nothing to hold you back? The thing that holds us back is sin, recognizing what it's done to our life and feel, still feeling tainted by it, still feeling hampered by it, still feeling paralyzed, crippled by it. If you could see how healed, how holy, how pure you are, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives and dwells on the inside of you. If you could see yourself that way, I guarantee you, you'd be strong. You'd go in and begin to do exploits, but we don't see ourselves that way. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you're timid, it's because you don't see who you are in Christ. Which walk not after the flesh. But again, see, it goes on in that same 8th chapter, I believe it's verse 31 or 32, Who is he that will condemn you? It's not Christ. He's the one that died for you, yea, rather rose again from the dead. There is condemnation for those who are in the flesh, but it's not God. And see, people take that Scripture as saying, well... It, God won't condemn you as long as you're in the Spirit and not in the flesh. No, that's not what it's talking about. There is condemnation. You can get super condemned. You go out and live in the flesh, Satan is going to condemn you. And in context, that same chapter shows you it's not God, but it's Satan. You will experience condemnation in the flesh, but it's not God that does it. Amen? Yes, sir. Why do you one, well, that's good. I'm glad you asked that. It needs to be answered. But boy, I tell you, there's so many questions to answer. I believe that our spirit is sanctified, perfected, cleansed. It is not defiled and it doesn't have to be forgiven. If it did, it would void these promises about to the spirits of just men made perfect. I've been sanctified and perfected forever. It just doesn't fit Scripture. So I believe my spirit does not have to be forgiven. But I am not only a spirit. I'm a soul in a body. And when I sin, I I sin with my body in actions and my soul in my thoughts. And that sin, according to Romans 6.16, gives Satan legal access to me. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself, his servant ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If I yield to sin, I give Satan legal access into my life. So I've got to get him out. How do you get him out? Well, you resist Him, but also I believe you confess that sin and God is faithful and just to forgive it. Not forgive the spirit, man, the born again you, but He deals with this flesh. He brings the salvation that is in our spirit out into our soul and into our body and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And when that, when that cleansing that is already constant and never fluctuates in our spirit begins to flow in our life by faith, by confessing it, repenting, and things, well then, boy, you drive Satan right out of your life. And so it is super important to confess it. Let me also give an example. We had a man one time that uh, went out because he was a great faith man. He was a Baptist preacher, and because he was a great faith man, he welded for seven hours without a mask because he didn't need it. He was faith. Well, they brought him over to my house, and this guy had these huge welts all over his face. He was blind, couldn't see anything, and he was screaming out for pain. They put a rag in between his teeth to calm him down. And man, we called the church over. We all started praying for this guy and believing God to heal him. And after about 20 minutes of prayer, this guy was still passing out. Every once in a while, he'd pass out, and they'd wake him up and stuff. And, well, Don 
and Wendy were over there. Bob Nowajewski. And, uh, and we were praying for this guy. And after about 20 minutes or something, the Lord just showed me that this guy had sown to the flesh and he was of the flesh reaping corruption. And I mean, it was not ignorance on his part. He was tempting God to do something like that. He had just literally so totally misapplied the Scripture. He was tempting God. And so I stopped and I said, Bob, you, that's just sin on your part. And I said, we aren't going to pray for you until you confess it as sin and repent of it. And he wouldn't do it. He got upset. And I said, okay, we won't pray for you. And he said, I'll do it. <laughs> so he confessed it as sin and did you know instantly the power of God flowed through him, all of his pain left. And that guy had been legally blind before that. He could only see eight inches with corrective lenses. He couldn't see seven or nine. Only eight with these corrective lenses. He was legally blind. And did you know we prayed for him and the next day he was driving his car without any glasses. God healed him. And it wasn't that God was going to say, I'm not going to heal you if you're out here. But He had given Satan place in his life. You can't just throw the door open to the devil and say, Satan, shoot your best shot. Come live in my life. Destroy me all you want to. And then the moment that he begins to start giving you a hard time, go uh, draw on God's power. Even though God is willing to still flow it to you, you have yielded yourself to Him and you became His servant. And so when you see that, repent of it. Get that thing cleansed out of your life so that the relationship that is already there in your spirit will now be able to function in your soul and in your body. How many? Let's see. Let's take somebody who hadn't asked. Answer one yet. If you have somebody that uh, professes to be a Christian that is born again but does not change their ways, that is firmly living in sin, do you mean to say that with the forgiveness that Christ has, for them, that if something happens, they're still going to go to heaven, even though they have proclaimed Christ as their Savior, but have not changed their actions? That's a very typical question. And I would answer that. For, there's two answers. The first one is, I do not believe it's possible for a person not to reflect salvation to some degree. If you are truly born again, First uh, John 3, 3 says, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So every man, there are no exceptions. Well, wait, I'm still, I'm still answering this question. So let me say that I really believe there are a large number of people who go through our motions of getting born again that never made a heartfelt belief in the Lord. And there are large numbers of people today who are not truly born again, and therefore you are not going to see it reflected. So that is one case. But it is possible, I believe it is possible for, say, an alcoholic to get born again, and yet if he isn't taught the Word of God for that alcoholism to continue to be a problem. I believe that's just as possible as for a fat person to get born again and continue to be fat. And I know that our society says, you are equating gluttony with alcoholism. Well, the Bible does. The Bible says gluttons and drunkards shall not enter into the kingdom of God. It puts them in the same verse. And so if you're going to say that you can't tell me an alcoholic can still be an alcoholic and go to heaven, well, if you don't accept that, then a glutton can't still, I mean, can't be a glutton and go to heaven. I believe it's technically possible, but if so, it is a total frustration of the grace of God. They are not having the life of God flow in them. They may have it, but it's not working. So technically it's possible, but I don't believe it's going to work that way. Let me show you another scripture in Romans chapter 6. Let's look at this.
Romans chapter 6, remember, he's been preaching this. And let me make another comment here. Somebody might see, find me saying, man, what you're preaching, I can see what you're saying and I can see how you're administering it, but if I share this with my people, they're going to take it as a license to go live in sin. Well, they're doing pretty good without a license. Amen. <laughs> and let me make a statement. Did you know, listen to this. This is, I believe, really good. Did you know that the goal of your ministry is not to get your people to quit living in sin? That really should not be a goal. It will be a byproduct, but never a goal. Most people preach living holy as a way to relationship with God, as a way to obtaining from God. But the truth is, the goal of the Christian life is relationship with God totally by faith in what Jesus has done for us. And from that life flows holiness as a byproduct. It's a fruit, not a root of salvation. And so if you don't preach grace to the point that somebody misunderstands it and says like in Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what they said about Paul. And every time Paul taught on this, somebody countered him. If you don't preach grace that strong, then you haven't preached the Bible grace. Amen. If somebody does not misunderstand you and take it wrong, you aren't preaching grace. You're watering it down. Pretty strong. Look here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 20. It says, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Now, before we go any further, let's get the terminology down. When it says when you were the servants of sin, that's talking about before you're born again, you were in bondage to sin and to Satan, the author of sin. And so before you were born again, you were free from righteousness. When it says you were free from righteousness, does that mean that you could do nothing that was right or good? No, you could do good things, but what it means is that that good wouldn't change your nature. You are by nature a sinner separated from God. And regardless of how much good you do, that good can't change your nature. You are by nature that. It's like a pig. Clean it up, put perfume on it, make it look like a sheep, glue fleece to it, doesn't matter. It is by nature a pig. It has to be born again. And that's the way it is with salvation. You've got to be born again. So what this is saying is before you're born again, you are incapable of being in right standing with God regardless of how many right things you do. Those right things don't change your nature. Amen. Now everybody agrees with that. Let's keep reading in context. Verse uh, 21. What fruit had ye then in those things we are out here now ashamed? When your nature was a sinner, how well was that nature producing? Pretty good. Man, you had fruit in those things. Now you're ashamed of them. For the end of those things is dead. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God. Here's the exact same terminology, the same chapter. Remember, it's not divided into verses and stuff. It is in the same context, exact terminology, except applied in the opposite direction. If you're going to accept the 20th verse and what we said, you've got to accept the flip side of this coin. It's just like a coin. It has a heads and a tail. If you're going to believe that that heads is real, well, then you've got to believe that the other side of it's real. So here's the flip side in verse 22. Now being made free from sin, you become servants to God. If servants to sin meant before you were born again, 
Servants to God is now talking about being born again. And it says now that you are born again, you are free from sin. Does that mean that it's impossible for a Christian to sin? No, because the Bible talks about Christian sinning. But what it means is that all of that sin cannot change your righteous nature any more than all of your righteousness before you were born again could change your lost nature. If you're going to accept one of those truths, you've got to accept the other one. If you're going to say that, look, it doesn't matter how good you are, it's not good enough, you've got to be born again, then you've got to say this, that once you are born again, it doesn't really matter what you do, it can't make you unborn again, that action. It cannot change your nature. Boy, that's powerful. Amen. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Don't you understand that this born-again man we're talking about is dead to sin? Don't you know? Did you know that, brothers and sisters, we have taken it for granted that we are all evil. And that if I don't keep myself under tight rein and if I don't condemn myself, I'm going to go out and commit adultery before the night's over. I'm going to start stealing. I'm going to become a total pervert if I don't just keep myself under the gun. That is not the truth. The truth is, and this is the premise that Paul operates on in a number of times. When he's asked the question, shall we continue in sin? Well, God forbid. You know, I was told once that that is the closest that you can come to profanity in the Greek language without just using profanity. In other words, you know, God forbid. No, this is not what I'm talking about. Definitely not. That's not what I'm saying. Don't you understand that when you got born again, don't you understand that the people in our church, if they're truly born again, they are dead to sin. They don't want to live in sin. You know why they're living in sin? It's because we're preaching on sin. It's because we make them sin conscious. Because we constantly instill in them, you're an old sinner, saved by grace. So they'll try and resist, but when they come to that breaking point where the flesh is about ready to give in, they say, well, I'm just an old sinner. They identify with that sin. But if they could ever begin to see, man, that's not me. I'm a new creature. Did you know that they would say, I can't do that. I'm not that person anymore. They wouldn't relate to it. Did you know that there are certain things that you can renew your mind on that it is literally impossible for you to do? Some people don't have that concept. But even under hypnosis, did you know that under hypnosis you cannot make a person do something that they are morally opposed to? Now, if they're weak, they will do it. But if a person has established, I will not do this, hypnosis can... Under no way can you make a person do certain things. Now, there's some of you that came out of a background that say, for instance, you enjoyed something at one time that now is sin and that you won't do it. And so for you, it might be a temptation. For me, it isn't a temptation. There are some things I honestly believe I could not be tempted with. Now, you may disagree with that, but I honestly... I, don't, I cannot imagine it doesn't relate to me. There is no way that I could ever, ever, ever see myself getting drunk. It's not a temptation. I've never taken a drink in all my life. I don't think that you could make me do that. I honestly believe I'm dead to that. I'm renewed in that area. Did you know that if I can do that, then how much more with Christ renewing our mind and seeing who we are, you can literally renew your mind to the point that no longer are those things, that's not you. You are not that way. One of the reasons that we feel this constant draw back into an old lifestyle is because we haven't really seen ourselves new. Old things passed away, all things have become new. We still see ourselves as an old alcoholic. 
We still see ourselves as a sorry, no good. We still have that impression of us, and it's just that God's given us a new chance, but we've still got this tendency towards it. It's not so. In your spirit, man, you're a totally new creature. And if you could see yourself that way, as you think in your heart, you would begin to live that way. You'd begin to live holy. If I had time tonight, I could show you scriptures that the law actually strengthened sin in your life. It actually made you lust. The law actually did these things. The law was intended to strengthen sin. The law was intended to let sin have dominion over you. And Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Turn that around and say, If you are under the law, sin will have dominion over you. If you are conscious of all of the do's and the don'ts, and if you are trying to measure up to some standard, I can promise you, you are going to live in sin more. And once again, I know that many people are saying, Brother, this just does not compute. I want you to know, in my own personal life, that, and I, I'm saying this as a fool, the way Paul talked, this has caused me to live holier than I did before. And it's caused me to live holier than many of you in here who are laboring under trying to please God. I am not using what I'm preaching as an occasion to go live in sin. I would stack my holiness up with yours, which is stupid because God doesn't relate with me that way, but I'm saying if you want to compare it and say, well, what you're pre preaching just causes sin. It didn't cause sin in my life. It hasn't caused sin in the lives of the people that I've seen that God gave it as a revelation. Now, I have seen some people go out and say, man, I like this. It frees me to live in sin. And somebody says, see right there, that's the reason not to preach it. But, you know, God looks at things differently. God looks at their heart. And if they were really lusting and just chopping at the bits to go over here and do it anyway, God says that they're already guilty of it. From us, from our standpoint, well, see what you preached, it just set these people free to go live in sin. They were already living in sin in their heart. They had already committed it in their heart. And all they're doing is now living it out. I'm not saying that that's good. It's going to give Satan more of an inroad into their life, but they really aren't any worse off. There are people that misused grace when Paul preached it. And he constantly came back and balanced it. And I'm not balancing this near as much as I would with a group of people who aren't pastors. I usually come back and really spend a lot of time talking about how sin has an inroad into your life. If you get this series of tapes I've got on hardness of heart, I've had people take those tapes that didn't understand grace and thought I was preaching legalism with it. And I'm not. If you'd get it, it would balance it properly. But I'm just saying that this will cause you to live holier. It will not set you free to sin. It will set you free from sin. And what it will do, it will let God's love flow for you without you feeling like you have to earn it. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.